Welcome to the podcast on a porch in a pandemic. I am Abby Lyons, a social emotional learning coach and side hustling yogi. And I'm Janet Moore, K-12 math instructional coach for teachers and students in Illinois classrooms. And we are here as representatives of the SEL world and the academic content world. Um, Abby on the side of SEL and me on the side of academic content, specifically with mathematics. Um, We're here for a showdown today uh, on this episode of our podcast. Um, We We are finally going to face off SEL versus academic rigor and see who wins. Who should win the competition for school resources, time, energy, money um, as we go back to school this fall? Should we have an SEL focus to our, our school day or should we hit those academics hard and increase and up and focus on the academic rigor. I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait to see who wins. (laughs) I'm pretty competitive, so just a fair warning. You got nothing on me. I I, I think I'm here for for academic rigor. Um, Before we get started, I think that it's important to define what we are talking about, or or at least give some loose definitions, um, because there are lots of people who have defined academic rigor in different ways and measured it or attempted to set up frameworks to measure it in different ways. So we're not necessarily going to be the ultimate universal authorities, but we're going to at least um, set up some operating definitions, um, some working definitions for how we're going to use these uh, these phrases, these terms in the showdown today. So Abby, why don't you get us started? When you say social emotional learning, SEL, what are you meaning with that what are what is involved in that for you so i will operate on the definition that castle provides they are sort of the governing body of social emotional learning who does a ton of research around the area so castle defines social emotional learning as the processes skills and attitudes related to self-awareness self-management relationship skills responsible decision making And I want to hone in on the skills, attitudes, and processes because it allows us to see social-emotional learning as a larger idea than just how are we teaching kids how to be respectful or how are we teaching kids how to make good choices. It is a much broader, much more organic, much more human-based definition that allows us to put the lens of social emotional learning on many different areas of what we're doing in classrooms with students and not to forget the adults in the building who are also working through the processes skills and attitudes of those different competencies self-awareness self-management relationship skills responsible decision making and i love the way that you are able to describe that as as involving all three of those things, the processes, the skills, and the attitudes. And I even wrote that down as you were saying it, because I think that that's going to be important for us to come back to throughout our conversation today. Um, 
when we talk about academic rigor, as I mentioned, academic rigor has been defined and, and measured and put on several different frameworks over the years. Some of the more famous ones are um, Bloom's Taxonomy, um, and Webb's Depth of Knowledge. And then from Bloom's Taxonomy and Webb's Depth of Knowledge, uh, Hess, Karen Hess, developed her cognitive rigor matrix where she incorporates Bloom and Webb together. Um, no matter what we're, we're doing, we're not going to pick one of those and, and use that. And this is not a course on how to use Bloom and Webb uh, when you're approaching your classroom. But instead, it's a larger conversation about academic rigor. And so when we talk about academic academic rigor today, we are going to be thinking about it in terms of the, the challenge, the level of challenge, the level of cognitive challenge involved in tackling a problem and solving the problem meaningfully. Um, and w before we started recording, Abby and I were talking about how um, this may be an episode where we have to print some retractions later. This is one where we really are in the middle of this conversation right now. So if we if we don't have the right words or exactly the right way to, to frame something today, we recognize that we are part of the conversation. We are not the end of the conversation. We're not summarizing a conversation that's already been hashed out. We are having the conversation in the world of education right now. So when I, when I loosely define academic rigor that way, it's in order to give it a, an open definition that hopefully welcomes Bloom, welcomes Webb, and welcomes Hess, or another framework that you might be um, more familiar with. Um, so don't, I, I don't want to limit the conversation with that definition, but I actually want to open it up. As we're talking about definitions of SEL and, and academic rigor, obviously that's the thing that we're throwing in the middle of the table right now. And we're starting to walk around and, and pull it apart. We're, we're looking at this competition of SEL versus academic rigor. And why is this an important conversation to have right now? All right. Let, as we walk around this, what, what's the point of having this conversation at this moment in time during August of 2020? Yeah, I, I was thinking the word container as you were describing what the purpose of defining the terms that may be doesn't capture everything we want to capture about them, but I feel like this conversation is creating a container for to, to be able to shift into the experience of returning to school in the fall. So there are no best practices for returning to school from a pandemic and a, in a pandemic. We, we don't have that established, but we do have frameworks established from academic rigor and social emotional learning. And I, and I feel like this conversation is going to help us create a container to allow for those two things to coexist and wait no 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 <laughs> this is the showdown this is the competition only one will survive i think one can be one will turn out to be the king <laughs> just getting in the container so i i think we'll be able to see through this conversation the ways in which we might be able to lift and shift this container into the context of of being in a school in a pandemic, and then also provide context for what this can look like after we move out of whatever this is with COVID-19. And, and I think that that's where I've seen the need for this conversation is 
when we think about back to school, I've had so many teachers say, yeah, Janet, I, I want, I, I see that it's important to care for the social emotional needs of our students. I, I get that. I get that. I understand that. But, you know, how long do we do that? Do we spend the first couple of days doing that? Um, do we spend the first week doing that? When do we switch over and and get to the academic content? Because um, they need to learn. They There's this this sense of they lost so much learning in the spring and so we really we need to turn on that academic learning um, as quick as possible and that means that SEL needs to be shoved to the side. And it's interesting because that's not isolated to right now to the experience right now. So I'll often hear teachers say from the the SEL side of things I'm going to do my get to know you activities for the first week of school and that's how I'm going to build relationships with students so that they trust me so that I can engage them in difficult academic rigor. We say those things when we're not in a pandemic and so what we're doing is we're just applying the lens that we have around how we think social emotional learning looks and then saying this is how it needs to look in a pandemic. So I I believe what we're going to do today is start to disrupt some of those lenses and provide uh, a new lens for people to look at the idea of social emotional learning and academic rigor and how they engage in our classrooms both pandemic and post-pandemic. Okay, so I think we've shown our hand. Okay. I think think we are really not here to have a showdown between SEL <laughs> and academic rigor. Instead, a bunch of people just turned off the I know it, pr- I press know pause and said, I thought you were going to give me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are. We're going to give you a, a way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the start of an answer. Um, but as Abby kind of mentioned, there's, there's a lens that a lot of people are looking at SEL through. And I would say there's a lens that a lot of people are looking at academic rigor through. And that both of those lenses have some some warps mm-hmm. in them. Both of those lenses are a little bit faulty. There are some misconceptions and misunderstandings about SEL and about academic rigor that make teachers and others involved in the world of education think that they are at odds and in competition with each other instead of that they are they have a symbiotic relationship and that they actually feed off of each other and work together and that's what we we want to explore today actually so could you give me some examples of what are some of the misconceptions that you find a lot of people have about social emotional learning? I'll start with the idea that social emotional learning is teaching expectations. So I expect my students to be respectful, responsible, safe, kind, thoughtful, whatever, honest, whatever the expectation is in the space. And then we, I'm doing air quotes, we teach them how to do the expectation. So we might create an anchor chart and write on it our class rules. Be respectful, be responsible, be safe, be kind. And I put the anchor chart up and then um, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, I refer to that and I say, remember, this is what we do in our classroom. That is not actually teaching. We're not actually teaching students anything and we're not actually creating an environment that allows them to practice 
what we're expecting of them. So a lot of times what will happen is we've created the expectations. We And this all happens in the first two weeks of school. So we've created the expectations. It's now a dead document on the wall rather than a living document. This is what we do in here all year long. And then if you don't do this, then there's consequences or punishment to get you to do that. Again, that's not teaching unless the consequences are, are set up in a way that are teaching. But most of the time what I see is that the, the consequence is actually punishment yeah. and is a reinforcement that you're not doing what we said you were supposed to do. So it ends up just being another system of behavior management. Yeah. And or behavior compliance. modification. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So the intention is not that students build the processes, skills, and attitudes to be self-aware and to make decisions that benefit themselves in the community. It becomes, I put that on the wall so that I hope that students will comply so that then we can get to the academic rigor. So that's one misconception that I see runs pretty rampant in most spaces that I engage in. Yeah, And I, I like to say when I'm throwing out ideas that might be new to educators that you don't know what you don't know. So this isn't a judgment or a slap on the wrist if this is what you do in your space. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And so the, the, Janet and I, we throw ideas down in the middle of the table and we're <laughs> learning with you. And so I want you to hear that this is just a new, we're offering a new lens to you. And you have the choice whether or not to pick it up or, or leave it there. Right. And I just, to be very clear here, I invite Abby to my front porch for each <laughs> of these recordings selfishly just so that I can learn from her. So I, I am certainly a learner in these conversations and I am so thankful to have the opportunity to, to throw something on the table and ask questions. Yeah. Um, sometimes it, it might sound like I, I'm asking a question that I know the answer to, but I really don't. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is this is really you getting to to join in on my lesson with Abby, yeah. my personal <laughs> lesson on my porch with Abby. Yeah, yeah. So uh, another misconception around SEL, um, specifically in the last few years, as Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset has become more popular, which I believe will be a great tie into the academic rigor conversation. Mm-hmm. The idea of growth mindset is at its core a social-emotional learning skill that I have an opportunity to engage in something. I have to be self-aware of how I feel about this engagement and I have to make a decision to move forward with it or to stop. What we do when we talk about growth mindset in classrooms is we put the poster on the wall and say it says something like, you can't do it yet or yes, you can, or, you know, there's the cute teachers pay teachers things that we print off when we put up on the wall. And then maybe we read the book Giraffe Can't Dance at the beginning of the year, right, in the first three weeks of school, and we talk about how this year is going to be full of learning, and you might not know things yet that you'll know at the end of the year, which is a phenomenal perspective to offer to students, and we can't stop there. And many times it stops with, we put the the giraffe, you know, construction paper cutout activity in our hallway, and it's a beautiful way to express that we're talking about it. But the problem is, it it generally stops yeah. after that conversation. And then the student experience, yes, doesn't match that introduction language, right? 
Say more about that. <laughs> so um, in a lot of math classrooms, I'll see, and really any classroom, I'll see a poster on the wall that says mistakes are, are just opportunities to learning or fail is first attempt in learning. We put up those posters and say, this is a great place to make mistakes. And then when students are actually working through problems and struggling through problems and uh, one student gets a correct answer, we say, great job for not making a mistake. And when a student gets an incorrect answer, we say, ooh, there's a problem there. Mm -hmm. And so we put up the poster that says that mistakes are awesome, but we reward students for getting quick, correct answers without making mistakes. And even if we try not to shame the students who make the mistakes, they know, they know what, what is getting praise and they know what is valued and they know in their grade, in their assessment reports, what is valued. And so there's, there's that poster up there, but the experience doesn't match the poster. There's the poster up there that, that talks about um, everyone is unique and individual, and yet I want all of your work to look exactly the same on your piece of paper, um, and if you don't do it my way, then you don't get credit for it. And so I value you as an individual, except when it comes to the, the classroom work. So there's a, a disconnect between what's on the poster on the wall and the experience that students have. Recently, I was, I was um, talking in a group of teachers and, and one teacher said, I, the word can't is not allowed in my classroom. My students are not allowed, it's banned. They're not allowed to say the word can't, like I can't do something. And I, I get that, I understand the intention for that. But unless that is followed up with, an, with several experiences where students can't do something at first and then they they work through the process to experience the success on the other side unless those experiences are regular occurrences in the classroom then not only do students they still think that they can't you haven't changed anything in their mind you've just taken away the language for them to express how they're feeling and their frustration and that that can end up being a double whammy against them if, if you're giving them lots of experiences and they're seeing how they can go from can't to can, and they're building their confidence in their ability to learn, then yes, it's great. Let's ban that word and, and let's make sure that we're always saying yet, but the experience has to match the language. There's a, Carol Dweck actually wrote an article to educators about that exact idea. So essentially she said, what you have done, educators, is taken my work and totally shifted it to fit the compliance-based system that you're in in education. So you're telling students that they can do something, but you have something in front of them that they literally cannot do. Right. And so in my world, when, we, when I use the, the brain-based language, we talk about how creating resilience building resilience requires predictable moderate and controllable stress experiences 
And so when we think about growth mindset or we think about academic rigor, it has to be set up in the same way. I have to create a predictable, moderate, and controllable experience to build students' resilience to what I'm expecting of them. I can't go out and run 26.2 miles if I haven't first trained one mile, right? Well, that's exactly where my mind was yes. going. I was just going to say, you, you, you don't say, I can't run a marathon, and someone says, yes, you can, and then magically the next day, right. you can. Right, right. And so we have to, like you said, create the experiences that allow students to build the capacity to do what we are expecting of them. And I think that it's really valuable for students to use the word can't so that they have seen, I have said that I can't do this. And then three weeks later, after my teacher facilitated an environment that allowed me to grow through predictable, moderate, and controllable experiences, now I can do that. I have a baseline to to reflect on and celebrate once I get to the place that I can do do that right and I love that you say that one of my favorite things to do um, when I'm kicking off a math lesson with students is to put up maybe if we're solving equations put up three equations and say two of these equations you should know how to do based on what we've what we've been working on in class one of them you don't know how to do yet one of them you can't do yet. You, I have not taught you the, the formal knowledge, the formal mathematical knowledge that you need in order to, to tackle it. Figure out which two should you be able to, um, to solve and which one can't you. And, and by kicking off a class with that, first of all, I'm not asking them to solve the any of them right i'm just asking them to reflect on what we've been doing in class and and that is it's it's a mild social emotional thing mm -hmm. but it's also a an incredibly academic rigorous academically rigorous thing because i'm asking them to analyze the structure of the problems and to compare the structure of the problems with what they are familiar with and to identify what's different about one of them. What is more challenging? And then I'll usually follow up with what's ugly or what's scary or what, what looks just terrible to about this problem compared to the others. And I'm giving students a chance to say, ooh, I really don't like those fractions or it's got an exponent or something else that, that's different and that looks ugly and that makes that more challenging. And then guess what the lesson of the day is? And by the end of class, we went from I can't to usually I'll weave that, I'll sneak that one back in mm -hmm. and, and after the lesson and after they've been starting to get some practice. And then I say, wait a second, look at that problem. Look back at the beginning problem from the, the beginning of the lesson, the one that you couldn't do. <gasps> you just did it. Right. You just did it. We just in 40 minutes went from I can't to I can, but we did it in a way that helped you be in control of understanding what you knew how to do and what you didn't know how to do. Yeah, and my SEL brain is just lighting up. So, so I mean, self-awareness and self-management are completely being addressed through that. How, how am I reflecting on my experience in this space with these people from prior knowledge, activating that prior knowledge to build on new knowledge to then reflect on what I have where I have come and what is a light that's a life skill to be able to be in a position in a space to look at something objectively and say I don't know that but I do know that how can I use what I do know to create a path and problem solve through something and then have the opportunity to look back and reflect on how far I've come 
and this is the point in the conversation where I don't know where the, I think we're talking about academic rigor right. and you think you're talking about SEL and already we've, we've just sort of fallen into a mode where we're weaving those two things together. I kind of want to back up just a little bit if we can sure. and, um, and pull them apart a little bit as well. Sure. What role do you see each of them having even when they're in that symbiotic relationship in a classroom, how do you see that that SEL is not um, competing against academic rigor from your point of view, from your perspective? Well, honestly, it's by not pulling them apart <laughs> in my brain, because I, I I I rely a lot on my my human experience as an adult to frame up what I create with teachers in classrooms. So, for mm -hmm. example. Many teachers are concerned right now about not be, being able to lead a morning meeting with their students in the traditional way. And I ask them, how, where in your life do you ever go to a place and create a circle to answer a question mm -hmm. to engage and build relationship with people? Right. Never. The dinner table would be the, the one microcosm example of how you might do that where you're in a a circle form building relationships. But we rely on that for social-emotional learning engagement in our classrooms so how can we take what our intention is building relationships and start to create an environment that allows us to do that as we can in the moment and I believe we may have referenced this in an earlier episode but when we're thinking about social emotional learning on its own in isolation from academic rigor Framing it up through what I need as an adult in my relationships with other people is very helpful for me. So I don't need you to to tell me that I've done something wrong and then to tell me that I can't do something on Friday because I did something wrong today. Right. So a lot of times in classrooms, a student has a behavior that is antisocial or unexpected and we tell them you can't do that here. We likely consequent them in that moment by taking away the dojo point or taking away the ticket or whatever the thing is that we have externally set up for them. And we also say, and because you did this on Friday, you're missing out on Friday fun. And so, you know, social emotional learning, it's hard to discern. It's hard for people to discern social emotional learning as separate from student behavior. And so a lot of times when I get I get called to, to do trainings or professional development, it's because they want people want to fix the behaviors of students and they see SEL as a program mm -hmm. to fix the behavior. Right. So I imagine similar to you, we want students to learn math. We want them to be competent math learners. Right. So we're going to bring Jana in to teach us the new curriculum to make our students learn the math. Right. And when we do that, we are misdefining social emotional learning, misdefining academic rigor and, and the experience of learning and we're creating a gap in the experience for students. And I think I, I caught on to one phrase that you that you said it, it, in that mindset, it's all about making them do something. Yes. How do I get my students to do this thing? Yes. And when we are doing that, we are not approaching our students as human beings. Right. We're at best, we're approaching them as puppies that we're trying to train tricks to. Right. Um, and so the true or truer approach to SEL 
and thinking about it and looking at it through a, a maybe a better lens is seeing everyone as humans yes and at, at its foundation treating everyone as a human and and working on enhancing the human experience that our students have in our classrooms and i want to latch on to that because that is exactly the key to increasing academic rigor in your classroom as well academic rigor is about the human experience the cognitive human experience that students have in your classroom i can ask what is i can ask a student to solve two and a half divided by three fourths and lots of different students can come up with a correct answer but the rigor involved in the process to get to that answer will vary greatly and unfortunately i think that a lot of a lot of teachers they they the data that they use to measure whether or not rigor is happening in their classroom um, is are my students sitting quietly are they working diligently on the 20 problems that i've assigned and are enough of those problems what i consider challenging do they have hard enough numbers in them or are they story problems that are a paragraph long and and hard to understand mm -hmm. and and that's the rigor if they are getting the correct answers on those and not causing problems in my classroom then i'm doing it the mm -hmm. rigor is there mm -hmm. and i think that you said that there's also that same data in the world of sel also gets misinterpreted as engagement right so we believe that those indicators of eye contact doing the work sitting quietly complying indicates engagement and that my students have the capacity to self-regulate that is those are the two words so we have a misdefinition of both engagement and self-regulation using those as indicators and in that moment we set a standard for that and if a student is not meeting that standard we say they are disengaged and we generally then try to apply the programmatic social emotional learning to them remember our expectations we talked about them 25 weeks ago remember them right do them please but we aren't actually teaching students how or why or questioning ourselves as to why that way of being is the way of being we should have in our space right and when i talk to math teachers about student engagement one of the common responses if I say well how do you know whether or not your students are engaged their answers are well they're either doing their homework or not mm. they're 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 turning in homework or they're not turning in homework and on that homework they're getting right answers or they're not getting right answers and that's somehow an indicator of engagement so uh, uh, a lot of the times I like to make extreme statements and then backpedal <laughs> from them and in that moment, my extreme statement, my extreme challenge is, I want you to, as a teacher to think about if you were not allowed to assign or collect any homework at all for an entire school year, you cannot use homework completion because that really is just compliance. Mm -hmm. You cannot use homework completion as an indicator of engagement. How else would you know if your students are engaged with the content that you're teaching because engagement is about the human experience um when can I, yeah can I pause really quickly i 
also in that conversation to start to peel back the layers. So homework completion, for example, that requires a number of oh. social emotional learning skills. Yes. Managing time, mm -hmm. organizational skills, writing down what I was what I was expected to do flexible thinking applying what you've taught me in the classroom and then doing it at home in a totally different um, environmental context self-awareness I sort of know this but I also need help from a caregiver or mm -hmm. if I have access to a caregiver so that's why I can't it's hard for me to separate in my head academic rigor and social emotional learning because s they rely on each other yes I would completely agree. And when that doesn't mean that that you shouldn't assign homework necessarily. I mean, I, I really I don't have a, a strong opinion about that. If it's if it's having a negative effect, I would say stop. Right. But um, but if you're if part of your goal is to help students practice some of those some of those skills then great, but don't use that as the measure of engagement or the measure of academic learning um, by any means, or it's certainly not your only measure of any of those things because it really is not measuring those things very well. And they can't be expectations if we've not taught. Right. So I can't send homework home and expect that a student is going to make a responsible decision to do their homework instead of playing basketball or video games or whatever without teaching them how to do that. And so that that opens up and I think this is this is probably where some teachers get overwhelmed because they say I got into this profession to teach math. Right. I didn't get into this profession to teach time management. And yet this is where we we go back to what you say you're not in the business of professional development you're in the business of human development. Mm -hmm. And I, this is where we kind of have to, to recognize that if I'm in a teaching profession, I am a math teacher, but I am teaching humans. And I am using math to help those humans become more fully developed humans. The math is, the, is maybe the thing that I'm tossing at them to practice those human things with right. um, and and now again we're, we're very solidly talking in the world of SEL because uh, I'm saying I'm using the math to teach the the human and yet good news good news <laughs> teachers this is in your standards mm -hmm. this is in the common core standards this is in the ngss standards this is in the framework that's set up for the history standards uh, or the social studies standards um, this type of human experience expectation is in your standards where is it you're not going to find it in the the content list you're not going to find it labeled as 3.g.a.1 but where you find it is in the practices. Mm -hmm. So the Common Core Math has the eight standards for mathematical practice. And those standards are common for kindergarten all the way through high school. Every single math student should be working on those eight things. And they are making sense of problems and persevering in solving them. I'm going to reword some of them just to be more audience friendly. Um, thinking flexibly about numbers 
being able to communicate mathematical ideas and being able to listen to and analyze the mathematical ideas of others, being able to find connections between math and the world around us, being able to attend to precision, being able to pay attention to details but keep the big picture in mind, being able to use resources, use tools appropriately and strategically, being able to look for patterns and use those patterns and extend them in order to solve new problems and being able to look for patterns and repetitions in order to find shortcuts. Now, as I reworded all of those, hopefully a lot of them, you're like, well, that's not limited to math, that's life. And that's exactly the point. The writers of the standards said, these are our long-term goals for our students. And the, the NGSS um, practices, the science and engineering practices are very similar. The ELA practices are very similar. We are all in the business of developing humans. And so where does the content fall? The content is the thing that we're, that we're using to practice those practices. I can't say, oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna work on making sense of problems and persevering and solving them unless I have a problem to solve. So the content guides us on, well, what types of problems are we going to use in order to practice being good problem solvers? And in math, it's math problems. In science, it's science and engineering problems. In ELA, it's problems about the texts that we are, that we are interacting with. Um, and so those are social emotional learning. The, the, the big guiding practices in all of our standards are human development, human experience, social emotional learning. And we do this as adults in our lives. I use my job, the conflicts in my job, the requirements of my job to build my capacity as a human to solve conflicts. When I practice solving conflicts at work, I'm better at doing it at home in my personal relationships and vice versa. My, when I can start to master conflict resolution in my personal environment, I can take those skills into my work environment. And so we, John Dewey, the father of progressive education, mm -hmm. has written about this idea that we aren't preparing kids who are in second grade for third grade. No. We are not preparing third grade for fourth grade and on and on. And sometimes I hear people say, you know, I'm preparing them to be responsible adults. And it's like, they're seven. Right. So we have some time to work through that. But what we're doing in our classrooms is preparing kids for right this moment. Yeah. And and so knowing that I can use the academic rigor as a vehicle to create an environment where kids are able to practice conflict resolution and, um, you know, autonomous decision making and their social skills and eye contact and mindful listening, all of the things that are create an environment for humans that is healthy and well we have the capacity to do that in our classrooms and it doesn't require another thing added on to it right it just requires a reframing of what we're already doing so that we can make sure we're being intentional and i love that idea that second grade is not preparing for third grade because when you when you go into your classroom and you say well why are why am i teaching this if you're in that mindset, I'm teaching this because 
they need it for third grade because there's this giant monster waiting for them in third grade. And unless they learn this, that monster that's in third grade is going to devour them. Or like, you're going to need to know this for high school. Why, why are you learning this? Because if, if you don't know this, you will fail. Bad things will happen. It's a fear-based way of teaching and it teaches our students that they should learn out of fear instead of saying why are we learning this because there are exciting ways that we can engage with this right now because we can pull this thing apart and we can see patterns and we can use those patterns to do cool things right now we're not learning this because you're supposed to be afraid of a test next week or because you're supposed to be afraid of next year's teacher we're learning this because there are cool things that we can accomplish and that we can learn right this moment and i think that that under, understanding that that is a common frame of thinking in our system is is an indicator of why people are so concerned about getting back into classrooms to be able to teach the content that was missed or to catch up. Mm-hmm. We have a fear that if we don't get all of the content that is in our scope and sequence or in our standards, if we don't get all of that into the heads of kids, that something really bad is going to happen. Yeah. I would like to encourage that if we actually take the time to identify key vehicles to teach kids how to experience the world as it is right now around COVID-19 and the difficulties of persevering in, in our academic rigor life so that we can use those skills when we have to go home and things are difficult at home. Mm-hmm. We're going to create an educational environment that feels relevant, that feels relational, that feels rhythmic, that feels responsible in meeting the needs of our kids. And I like the way that you say, take that time. Mm-hmm. Because even within the academics, even if you're focused on academics, and even when there's not a quarantine happening, you still need to take time, especially at the beginning of the school year. I I call it a unit zero when I'm working with a lot of teachers to define what does it mean to be, in my case, a mathematician in this classroom. And those eight mathematical practices are what what defines, those are the defining characteristics of being a mathematician in this classroom. What does it mean to be a human in this classroom? And that's what we're trying to teach our students how to do again. In math class, here's how it looks like to be human here. It means that you're going to make mistakes and we're going to persevere through our problem solving and that we really don't value correct answers as much as the human experience of the process of getting to those correct answers. So unit zero sets up those those defining characteristics and gives students a chance to practice those things. Today we're going to practice looking for patterns and then extending those patterns. Today we're going to practice communicating our ideas and listening to the ideas of others. Today we're going to practice seeing a mathematical concept in different ways and representing it in different ways. We have to take time to do that at the beginning before we get into the really meaty, important content of the year so that students get practice 
with being a human and interacting with the mathematical content. Then as they go forward and they are ready to, to start tackling all the important content, we need to reinforce that we're doing it in a way that maximizes the human experience. And they're continuing to practice as you go throughout the year. So it's yes. not something where we've put it on the wall and said, you need to be doing this because we talked about it at the beginning of the year. They're actually having opportunities because of the way that you've set up the mathematical environment for them to continue practicing it. it does us no good to say you can persevere okay. and then to create an environment where they don't have the opportunity to practice right. perseverance. And if I if I steal from one of our previous episodes, that those mathematical practices, they are setting our vision mm-hmm. for what we want to accomplish throughout the school year. And that is the vision that we as teachers need to go back through because otherwise we do, we, we accidentally slip into this mode of, okay, now I've got my checklist of content and, and my goal all of a sudden becomes covering, air quotes, covering all of that content regardless of what kind of experience my students are having with it. But if we set the vision of the human experience, then every piece of content that we, that we interact with is going to be supporting that experience somehow. And you, you never believe it until you experience it. But when that happens, if you don't quote unquote cover all of the content, it's not that big of a deal. It ends up not being that big of a deal because you have developed the kind of humans who can explore new content in meaningful ways and who are not dependent on the teacher to do all of the work and the covering for them. And that same principle applies when we talk about social emotional learning. If I am creating an environment where I have to be present in order to make kids comply, they are totally reliant on me for the organization of being in a school environment. Mm -hmm. If I teach them why and how and when to engage in in ways that contribute to our community in, in positive and healthy ways, I'm creating humans who can continue doing that when I'm not present, which is which is why we're not learning for second grade because they're living a life 90% of the time outside of your classroom. And so I want students to be engaged in these ideas and, and in these ways when they're not with me. Um, and, and I also was thinking earlier you said – um, you know, sometimes teachers feel frustrated because they didn't sign up to do time management and they didn't sign up for to teach kids how to make responsible decisions or how to build relationships or whatever. And I just want to encourage us and, and ground us in a, the reality that in, in the adult environment in schools, we struggle with social-emotional learning at the adult level. What? <laughs> Conflict resolution, Mm -hmm. time management, following through on commitments, organization, team leadership, all of those things are social-emotional learning skills, processes, and attitudes that we struggle with at the adult level. And I have heard administrators say, it's not my job to teach my adults that. And then I've heard superintendents say, it's not my job to teach my district administrators that. And I, it begs the question of who's going to step up and take responsibility? Mm Mm-hmm. Who is going to interrupt the drift and say, no, actually, I will take responsibility for pouring into these 
this group of people, be it kids, adults, administrators, superintendents, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to take responsibility for setting the vibration of how I want to engage with other humans in my environment, be it kids or adults. And it, it does not serve us to say that's not my job. And at least in my experience, when I say, okay, it is, it is my job. I'm going to take the time to do that. I end up going so much farther. Yes. And there's so much more delight yes. waiting for me in that experience than I ever would have anticipated. And my teacher, Suzanne, says she gives us the language of turning complaints into commitments. Mm. And so if I hear myself complaining about how that adult is being passive aggressive, it becomes my commitment to engage with that person in a healthy way. Mm. And I get to show up from a place of choice and start to create shifts and transformations in my environment because I have turned a complaint into a commitment. I like that. I, I know. Like that verbiage. It's and, helpful. And it goes along with some of what we talked about in a previous episode about taking your frustrations and turning them into your learning objectives. Yes. What are the things that, that frustrate you or that you're concerned about, you're anxious about, and how do you turn that into something that you're going to actually focus on instead of trying to avoid right. and hope it magically gets better? Right. So we're running out of time here, Abby. Wow. Tell it's gone me fast. What is your what is your wrap up? How what is your summary takeaway from today? You can't have social emotional learning without academic rigor. And you can't have academic rigor without social emotional learning. No, you stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> At least we have a consistent so, message. <laughs> so I think that today the showdown was a bust because I think that we're walking out of the ring um, holding hands here. Um, I, w I just want to second that, that rigor is more about the human experience than it is about correct answers. And if you don't have a social emotional focused classroom, then you will never know the rigor level that your students are operating at and you will never be able to take that rigor level um, to to a deeper depth if we're talking about web um, or to a higher height if we're talking about bloom or building resilience if we're talking about the brain-based lens awesome well thank yeah. you so much this is a conversation i was excited to have and i'm so happy that we were able to have it thanks yeah. for uh being willing to go on this journey anytime. Thank you. Take care. Bye.